This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Okay, welcome back. We took a breather last week to stretch our legs, and now we are almost at the finish line on principal photography for Speed. As 1993 started to draw to a close with the bulk of the bus material covered, there were still two big sequences left to shoot. Today we're going to dig into the one that kicks off the movie. Including the opening credits sequence, the first act of Speed is a 23-minute hair-raising bit of business that pulls you in and puts you on notice for the kind of movie you're about to watch. A group of 13 business folks cram into an elevator in downtown Los Angeles' gas company tower and begin making their way down to the lobby. Just then, lunatic bomber Howard Payne blows the cables and holds them all hostage with the emergency brakes rigged to explode if his ransom demands are not met. Here's director Jan DeBont to start us off today. I know that people have, like I do, aversion to being caught in the elevator that's caught and, 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 and hanging somewhere in the middle. And, and as this has, this has happened to me once, I really um, thought, if I can make it look true, how you actually feel if you're stuck in an elevator, it can be a really great scene. It's a great payoff at the end. But the moment you do that, then you have to figure out how the hell you're going to film that because, you know, we could not build a gigantic 20-story elevator set. So we had to do it in sections. And here is casting director Risa Brayman Garcia talking a little bit about the actors you see in there. Some of the elevator were people who are friends of people, like this is where you put your people. But Patrick Hurley, Patrick Fischler, Susan Barnes, Mailhouse, Barry Kramer, these are all lovely actors, like, you know, good character actors who just, you know, people I knew. Now, I was not able to round up each and every one of the actors in the elevator like I was with the bus section, but I did manage to get a hold of a few of them. So let's get them in here. First up, probably the most recognizable face on that elevator, and the actor who has gone on to have the most success, is Patrick Fischler, who plays Friend of Executive. But we all know his name is Bob, of course, because he's the guy who presses the button and actor Robert Mailhouse says, Jesus, Bob, what button did you push? Anyway, you've seen Patrick all over. He was in Twister, Mulholland Drive, and The Black Dahlia, as well as TV's Mad Men, Lost, Silicon Valley, and Once Upon a Time, among tons of other credits. Here's what Patrick recalls of what would become his true entree into show business. Well, this was my SAG card. This was my first job. I grew up in LA, but I just moved back to LA after NYU, and I auditioned for the guy on the bus. There's a guy on the bus, uh, I forgot the actor's name, but like youngish 20-something guy. He's talking about the role of Terry, which David Kriegel ultimately played. So I auditioned for that and obviously didn't get it. But then my reps were like, you got another part. Here, here's what it is. But I mean, I'm 23 years old. 
I've never done anything. I'm coming out of NYU and I was, you know, joyous. <laughs> I thought, holy shit, what is this? But I really, really liked Jan. I loved working with him. I remember sort of like he liked my look of my face and he would talk about that. And I think that's probably how I got the role. I don't think I got the role because like, oh my God, that guy's such a good actor. I didn't get to do anything. Um, so, and that's what I think continued him wanting to work with me. Um, cause he was a European director, a cinematographer coming out of Europe. And I think he was super into faces. So, you know, I was my first job making money as an actor and I didn't have to wait tables and never did again. Actually, speed was the beginning of never having to 30 years later. I've never had to have another job. Next up is Susan Barnes. Susan's credits include Scrooged, Nothing to Lose, and Nurse Betty, and she would also return in Speed to Cruise Control, albeit in a different role. In Speed, she played female executive, specifically the woman who is frozen, terrified to get off the elevator, and finally makes it off just in the nick of time. Susan has an interesting story about how she ended up with that role. I was brought in to be on the bus. I think I came back a, a time or two, but then... Beth Grant, Beth got the role, and I'd had a good exchange with Jan, um, and he put me through some paces. I didn't get that job, and I got a call almost immediately from a, a playwright named Doris Baisley, really good playwright that I had known personally for a long time, and she was premiering a play at ACT Seattle. She needed somebody for the lead, and she called me. And so I went to Seattle, and I did that play. Then I came, as I do when I come home from being gone on location somewhere, I generally hit the movie theater and see like three movies. I catch up on my movies. And when I came out, after watching, I don't know, a couple of movies, it was like, oh my God, the street is blocked off, and what? And then I, in the distance, I saw the bus, and it was for the final wreck. To be clear, she was watching movies at the Chinese theater in Hollywood and came out to see all of the setup for the big stunt involving the subway car bursting out onto Hollywood Boulevard. Fancy that. And as I was walking down the street, I heard. <laughs> You know, this voice go, Susan, Susan, and it was Jan. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I live up here on the hill, but I just got back from Seattle, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, stay, stay, stay and watch what we're doing. And I did. And it was great to watch it happen. And then I said goodbye to him and I went on home and about, Two or three days later, I got a call from the casting woman, Risa Brayman, and she said, Jan wants you to be in the elevator sequence, which kind of opens the film, and he said he'll give you, you know, a bit, an extra bit, because I, I figured that was going to be one day. It was nine days work. I said, oh, okay, so that's how I got in the elevator. Next up is Richard Gelb, elevator passenger number nine. You heard Risa Brayman Garcia mention that this is where friends tend to show up in a movie, in sequences like this. Well, Richard is one such friend, 
but he's got a fun story about ending up in this particular sequence. Here he is talking about his longtime buddy, producer Mark Gordon. I've known Mark since uh, 1974. I think I was 16 and he was probably 18. I was working in L.A. and he gave me a copy of this script and he said, tell me what you think of this. And uh, I read the script. He had not gotten it set up yet. And I remember it was a page turner. And I thought, this is going to get made. Absolutely. And I said to him, when it gets made, you have to promise me you'll put me in the elevator scene. And uh, he kept his promise. And here is Cece Chow. Cece plays elevator passenger number seven. And like Susan, she first auditioned to be one of the bus passengers. I originally was supposed to be on the bus. They ended up having an older Asian lady on the bus, I believe. They took me off the bus and put me in the elevator because they didn't want someone, uh, a woman in the same age as Sandra Bullock, because at the time it was her big, you know, moment. I should probably also mention that someone else in that elevator was Robert Mailhouse. He's the smarmy guy who asks Bob what button he pushed. Again, this is where you get your friends into the project, right? Well, Robert is the drummer of Keanu Reeves' band, Dogstar. They have a new album out right now, by the way, and they're touring all over the country at the moment. I think they're over on the East Coast this week. At the first day reading, I kept, you know, sort of looking at this young guy who's probably close to, might be a little bit younger than Keanu was, and a really nice-looking kid, tall kid. I realized, because he was, like, always right there, always talking to him. And at first I thought, I wonder if this is annoying Keanu. (laughs) It was like, oh, my God, that guy is such a pest. I mean, I was eating lunch, and Keanu sat down, and then, you know, two, three more minutes later, this kid came and sat down right beside him. I mean, I was across the room, and that's what I was going, oh, no, no, he's he's got a fan that he can't even eat lunch. And it was one of his best friends. So that's how all of these pieces ended up falling into place. We'll hear from these folks again, plus a few more shortly, but let's move into the craft of this sequence, which is substantial. I could get into the opening credit sequence here if I wanted to, which is a whole story, but I think I'll hold on to that a couple more weeks for an upcoming episode focused on the visual effects element of the film. However, the point to be made here is that there are two versions of the elevator shaft at play. There is a full-scale, multi-story shaft that was built on stage 14 at 20th Century Fox, And then there was a miniature version that was built by legendary model maker and effects designer Grant McCune's company. I'll get into that part of it at a later date, but the full-scale stuff is what we'll try to focus on here, and by all accounts, it was a pretty sketchy endeavor. Here's production designer Jackson Degovia. This is something different. This is really dangerous. And it was. We tried to protect people as much as we can, but you cannot do stuff like that and protect everyone totally. It's like rodeo, you know. You're dealing with something where people can get hurt. First assistant director David Sardi. Obviously the movie's remembered for its bus work, but for me, the the most challenging and in some ways dangerous sequence of the whole movie was the elevator sequence. We built that on a soundstage at Fox, and you know, it was three stories. It was all the way to the grid of an elevator shaft that had all of the 
danger of a practical elevator shaft and none of the benefits, right? I mean, we were moving the elevator with a crane outside the studio with cables run out, you know, and stop and start on a walkie-talkie. There was no precision to any of it. It was all just like eyeballing stuff and, you know, yeah, that's good stuff, as opposed to like everything now would be on a computer program. Art director John Jensen. We had to cut a hole in the floor all the way down and dug into the dirt and cut into the perms on the top, all the uh, supporting structure at the top to get enough room for what we needed. The stage wasn't tall enough, so we, we dug down and cut in up above. It was a little bit difficult to get permission from the studio. Special effects coordinator John Frazier. We would never do this today, but we just, we cut a hole in the roof of the stage and put the crane outside and would lower the whole elevator inside by a crane that's outside. So the operator's outside and we're moving this elevator. Today I go, my God, we, just, we, we, we wouldn't do that today, you know? Because it's, it was so dangerous. You know, when the lady, when, when you were worried about people getting decapitated and stuff. Well, yeah, we were worried about people getting decapitated <laughs> because everything was being done over the radio. Okay, lower two inches, lower two, okay, drop it a foot, drop it a foot. Okay, you know, drop it on three, you know, and, and it, it was that kind of thing. Cinematographer Andre Barkoviak. It was the craziest thing you've ever seen. Through the roof. The big crane construction outside with the remote little monitor, those monitors, they were like shit, if you remember those days. That, that man operated elevator, I mean, to an inch, he would stop it and move with tremendous speed. The stop looking down, we had a, um, a mat, there was a painting on the floor with a perspective painting that we uh, supplement the lights, uh, you know, descending down. So the depth was created by the perspective painting that we laid on the floor. But, you know, actors, they definitely, they were hanging. They were, you know, they were in the jeopardy all the time. All the people in the elevator, including Jeff and Keanu and us, were all dependent in the hands of the men outside who could not see anything except the eight-inch or nine-inch little old TV monitor. <laughs> Second assistant director, Maggie Murphy. The elevator was one of the tallest stages on the lot and it wasn't rigged with the eye bolts and all the things that needed to hook the harnesses and all the safety things in yet for the first couple of days so people couldn't go out on the i-beams and it was constantly like saying to the camera operator who was like shoulder up a camera and start to go out on the i-beam you know stories and stories up from the ground of the floor of the stage because it went really high in the stage, right? It was like like a real elevator shaft. And until they put those eye bolts in to hook in the safety harnesses and stuff, you know, Deanna would be like, I want the camera there and the camera there and everything. And these camera operators, like they go, they're told to go do this, you know, like burning those guys in their shoulder up and go out onto the eye beams. We had to be like, no, 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 you can't go out there yet. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And then once they got those things in place, it was like, you know, would I go out there? Hell no. But those guys, those camera operators, they're pretty bold. We're just packing them all in here. Stunt coordinator Gary Himes. You know all the stories about the lion and the helicopter. and the, So that's young, right? You know, and so we're in the elevator set, and we're doing the shot where, remember, they pull that 
lady out and she just barely makes it and her feet just clear and you know and, and these are this is like a practical elevator set we built on stage but you know probably would several limbs it hit hard enough but so Jan's in there and, and I'm safetying him and he's operating camera and he wanted to get this shot with a like the camera sticking on, like I'm grabbing him and pulling him back. And he's like, you pulled me back too soon. I'm like, yawn. The thing almost took your head off. Yawn has such, I almost call it blind faith. I mean, you know, I'm glad he has that respect that he knows I'm not going to let him die. But it's like he would push it so many times, but he knows what he's after and he's not afraid to get it. So I have nothing but respect for that. Let's hear from actor Jeff Daniels on this. I remember like a three or four story drop. It wasn't like, you know, 20 feet and they had mats down there. It was, we were up. Uh, I don't know that they could get away with that now. Safety regulations and all that. But um, I, I knew we were kind of dancing around on girders, looking down for several flights. And don't make a mistake, you know, on where your feet are going. We would do that a different way now. I don't envision that we would shoot the set the way we did it. That was really a dangerous set. It was dangerous for the crew. It was dangerous for the cast. It was hairy. And I think that there would be a better, safer way to do it now, to approach it, you know, with set extensions and some CG work. And back to actor Patrick Fischler. Dude, I'm actually really glad I didn't know all of that then. See, that's the thing. Like now, obviously, I've been working for so long that when I do anything, I'm super involved. I feel like I like to know everything that's happening. Back then, I mean, I was, like I said, I was 22. I, 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 I didn't know anything that was going on, and nor did they include us in any of that. So I didn't know any of that. And now I laugh being like, no wonder we were all kind of freaked out by it. We'll stick with Patrick here and get back to the actors talking about their experience inside the elevator with all that jolting and dropping and whatnot. I remember that it got a little claustrophobic and uh, stinky in there because we really were all in there together. They didn't sort of take us in and out a lot because it was just easier. So we were in there a long time. Richard Gelb. Basically, it was a week of work. I had never had that experience before of working as an actor before or since. And um, it was hard work. They built an amazing set and they stuck us in an elevator and they hoisted us up. And for about a week, they would drop us and blow crap up. And um, it was difficult. Uh, I remember thinking, I'm in the background of this scene. It's a big scene, but I got to do something that will maybe make the camera stay a little bit or get cut into it. And so I remember really thinking, you know, I've got to act as much as I can. So however many of us were in that scene, I think we all took it very seriously. Like we're the elevator people. I remember we, we would talk about it. It was like the whole movie was about us in the elevator. It was a powerful experience. I got sick at the end because we were not just being dropped, but we're yelling and, and there was screaming and it's close in and they're blowing up smoke and little bits of crap. And so I think at the end of it, it was, there were long days and um, it took its toll on all of us, I think. Here is Michael Fujimoto, who plays elevator passenger number eight. I remember like 
a lot of times we wouldn't get cues. So that's how they would scare us. Like, you know, all of a sudden, like the elevator would drop and then and we'd be like freaking out. I mean, you know, generally freaking out because we nobody told us anything like the elevator's going to drop. I, I was like at a point a little concerned because I'm thinking, could I die doing this? Because, you know, they, they would have the stunt coordinator, you know, do something. And they kind of say something like, oh, it's protected or whatever. But I'm thinking like, you know, the elevator goes through when they're pulling me out. I, don't I die or something like that? But I mean, I just, you know, went along with it or whatever. But I'm like, I don't even, I'm not sure what I'm getting into. You know, I'm really thinking, you know, it's kind of dangerous, maybe. CC Chow. Yeah, I mean, they said it was they were going to try to, you know, recreate as much of the the experience so that we would have the real experience. But you're talking about how it's kind of a big fear for everyone that you get locked up in an elevator and you can't get out and or it drops. You just kind of can go with your own fear. So any jolt is kind of like, you know, shoot, (laughs) please don't let, you know, this be the time. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. You were with strangers. I mean, towards the end of the week, we got to know each other, but it was pretty much the experience you, you would have in a, a real situation like that. That's Jan's thing that I think maybe went too far on Twister. He pushes it to get real fear out of people. Once again, I was so young and I just was like, this is so fucking cool. All right. So meanwhile, Jack and Harry are up on the roof trying to find a way to stall Payne's plan. Jack doesn't want to shoot the hostages. He just wants to take them out of the equation. His bright idea is taking the hook of a window washer winch from the roof, dropping it down the shaft, and latching it onto the top of the elevator. Here's Jeff Daniels again. We're running up 52 flights of stairs to the roof of this building. And, you know, I come out of New York, you know just short of method acting and, you know, make it, you know, as real as possible. So, you know, when you're running up 52 flights of stairs, plus you're wearing all that SWAT gear and carrying the gun and all that. The first take, I burst out of that door behind Keanu, just breathing like I was coughing up lungs, you know, just. <clears throat> and Keanu Bond said, cut it, cut it, cut it. And he goes, you know, the breathing, no, not with the breathing. Keanu wasn't, you know, he wasn't breathing at all. He hadn't, he was like 52 flights was like a walk up, you know, nothing. He goes, this is not that kind of movie. Okay. All right. Okay. And so take two, just burst out like we, you know, just come in off the street and open the door. He was very clear. No, I don't do that. Just don't do that. I know. I know. But don't do that. We don't care. No one cares. Got it. Okay. You don't want your hero or heroes for as long as they live, um, you know, coughing up lungs coming out of doors at rooftops. So I, it was like, got it. Understood. Back to special effects coordinator, John Frazier. Yeah, that was pretty crazy working up on top of the tallest building in the city, rigging that stuff. <laughs> we just kept going. Not quite the tallest. The U.S. bank tower went up in 1986. Hate to be that guy, but go on, John. I remember coming out of the door, I'm up on the roof, and I see Mike Menardis, who's really turned into a really fine special effects guy. And we were rigging the window washer units, the ones that got sucked into the elevator. And he's literally standing on the guardrail. And I couldn't even yell at him. I couldn't even say, get down. I was afraid. I thought he's going over. 
and there he is. He's standing up on the guardrail, and I'm going, well, we got to sort out, guys. We got to take a break, you know. We have to get back to reality here. It's just a movie. But at the time, it's not – when it's all over with, you can say that. You, you go, it's just a movie. But while you're doing it, it's not just a movie, you know. We just did some insane stuff. Production designer Jackson Degovia. One reason that the uh, crane, the yellow and black crane, is, is so incredibly vivid was because it, it was delivered to the set, you know, like about a couple of hours before it was going to be shot. Uh, so we didn't have time to do a uh, weathering and all that kind of stuff to make it look real. It really stood out, I thought. And uh, that turned out to be a virtue because it was like, uh, you know, here it comes. Watch this uh, thing. And then all of a sudden it's it's ripped off and falling down the shaft and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it's okay. I mean, it's it's like... You want to surprise people, but you also want to make them uh, fear what they're about to see. You want to make them nervous. You remember what happens next. Payne hears Jack securing the winch hook to the elevator and... Don't fuck with daddy. He blows the emergency brakes. But lo and behold, Jack's idea works. For the time being, the winch hook is holding the elevator. Let's get back to the actors as we're almost at the point of rescue. Here's Michael Fujimoto again. When the back door of the elevator um, blew up, I don't know if we got a warning for that, but that was like, you know, I mean, kind of hairy because I I think I remember a lot of air pressure, air, and then I guess it turned out to be like pieces of styrofoam, but it was kind of, that was kind of hairy when they made the explosion, but it was just all this big pressurized airs and little debris flying everywhere and stuff like that. Another actor in there is Paige Goodman, elevator passenger number four. Paige's character is the one whose legs go falling through the hole in the floor of the elevator after Payne blows the brakes. Those were a stunt person's actual legs, to be clear, but let's get Paige's voice in here as she did have some elements to shoot with that stunt. My part of the legs dangling, I feel like, I think it was like stationary. I can't remember. I might have now it's I'm thinking, did I have like a some type, not a harness, but something. There was something I recall was like keeping me in there, but it didn't drop when I was in it and legs dangling. It was shot like it had already fallen, you know, and, you know, I remember that we shot that a few times of people trying to pull me out. Here's Susan Barnes talking about her big moment that Jan carved out for her, where she gets scared and then finally reaches out for Jack to start pulling her up. We came up with this bit after the first day. The costumer went to Jan and the producers and said, we have to pad her because all across her abdomen is bruised very badly <laughs> because they kept smacking me against the bottom of the elevator. Everybody thought I was fat, but I was padded. <laughs> People back here and you know, my friends are going, hey, you gained a little weight. Because like, they padded me up after they realized that I was being banged against the bottom of the elevator every time they pulled me up. It's a story I tell all the time. Like, yeah, no big deal. Keanu Reeves pulled me out of an elevator. And I don't know, it's just such a funny thing, right? If you, especially if I did not continue on with that. So it's like my one little um, 
you know, I'll be on a job now as a producer and someone will mention that I was in that movie and people will start looking it up on their phone and trying to find, you know, that clip or whatever. They were really pulling us through this small space. That's the kind of stuff that Jan does is he creates an adrenaline that is real. You don't need it because we're actors, but, you know, it helps for those who can't get there. So I do remember like the space was tight and, you know, having that panic of like, wait, I don't want them to shift this thing when I'm coming through it. But I love roller coasters. Um, I love rides. So for me, all of that kind of stuff was fun. But I could see my memories correct. Some people on the elevator, it freaked them out in a negative way. There was one girl who later she was upset because there's a shot where she's getting pulled out or in or something. And her skirt went up a little bit and they kept that, you know, like that was part of the, you know, the final cut. I remember her being really irritated about that. Okay, everyone is safe and running down the hall. Susan loses her shoe here. You remember that? That actually happened by accident on one of the takes and they ran with it. Literally, I yelled out, my shoe. (laughs) And they said, yeah, use the shoe bit. I, you know, I was the lady that wouldn't get out of the elevator who lost her shoe. And I will tell you that some fans and then friends from childhood, I would get a box with one shoe in it. (laughs) Jack and Harry breathe a sigh of relief. But then, Jack has another of his epiphanies. Who's here? He could have blown that thing from Pacoima. No. He knew we were up to something. He's close by. And indeed, off to the freight elevators they go. Here's stunt coordinator Gary Himes. There's another moment with Keanu, and I said, would you be comfortable jumping to the cable from the opening? Now, he's on a cable, and I have him, you know, he's not going to fall. And he just looks at me, and he goes, I don't think I can do this, Gary. And I'm like, Keanu, I would never ask you to do anything I knew you couldn't do. And he just looked at me and goes, okay. And of course, he nailed it, you know. And then afterwards, he goes, oh, that was easy. And I said, Keanu. Please stay this humble. Jack slides down the cable as Harry climbs down the shaft, and this is where they engage Payne down in the freight elevator. You'll see a couple of shots that look down the shaft from this perspective. I might as well talk a little bit about visual effects here, so let me introduce you to the film's visual effects supervisor, Boyd Shermis. We'll hear a lot more from Boyd in the next couple of episodes, so this is just a quick hit for this part of the sequence. We did a painted backing sort of old school painted back in so that when you're looking down, it was sort of a fixed force perspective on the elevator shaft. So you're looking down and the elevator car is 10 feet off the ground, if that, but it's sitting on a painted backing, much as like a, a painted site that you might've done in the old days in old Hollywood. It was painted to the perspective of being 40 feet in the air, looking down an elevator shaft at a 40 degree angle. So that was a very old school technique that Jan wanted to do because, A, it was cheaper. And he shot a number of movies using that kind of gag. And he was comfortable and confident he could pull off a handful of shots. Speak of the devil, director Jan DeBont. It's one of the few times that we had to use visual effects. Actually, not really visual effects. The own set effects where you paint the background to a perspective that you already preset. So I looked at a camera and said, so the lens, you have to be a 50 millimeter and, and the lights that mount on the wheel set have to be then continued on, on to the painting. 
So you get a really, a really right perspective. And that's really hard to achieve. So you have to, because you see the lights that are there on the side. And then to continue that, you have to get little, the first couple are tiny, tiny little um, light effects, uh, light, real lights. And then as they deeper down, of course, there's no space. Then they become like painted light effects. And to get it all lined up, it's really hard. And if you make one mistake with a camera, it's immediately clear it's fake. Production designer Jackson Degovia. It gets confused down there, but it looks deeper than it actually is. And that was a fantastic effect. We might as well hear from gaffer Chris Strong as well. We tried to do as much as we could off of practicals. And there was really nowhere to hide any light. So, I mean, we had stuff from up above going down. And at times, if you didn't see the bottom, we'd have something down there bouncing, just coming up. Just give the ambience. But it was mainly just the, uh, the practicals on the sides and in the top. By the way, remember in this sequence, after Harry falls down into the freight elevator with pain, and then pain makes the elevator start going up, and Jack is sort of stuck there, riding it to the roof? Those shots of Keanu riding the elevator are the only blue screen shots in the entire movie. Here's Boyd Shermis again. We still did, in a handful of shots, a bit of blue screen of Keanu riding on the elevator car, into which we would composite the miniature background. But again, that miniature today would have been a 3D background. But I'll argue that we probably almost assuredly would have done more blue screen work and less of that sort of painted backing gag that we did for the elevator shaft. You know, people are pretty quick to just say, oh, yeah, well, I'll throw up a blue and we'll shoot it on blue. And, you know, once again, for, for time and for budget and any number of other reasons, you know, we opted not to do blue screen on those handful of shots and instead did the painted backing. So those are things you just wouldn't do today, I don't think. So just a bit of a peek inside the craft of all of that. There's plenty more to discuss about that miniature and how the future met the past and the hybrid effects quality of the film in due course. But for now, Jack jumps down into the elevator and it's a standoff. Hold it! Pop quiz, hot shot. Terrace holding a police hostage. He's got enough dynamite strapped to his chest to blow a building in half. Now what do you do? And then... Give it up, you got nowhere to go. Shoot the hostage. <laughs> Say goodbye, Harry. That's right, Jack hauled off and shot the fucking hostage. And both of those lines, Pop Quiz Hot Shot and Shoot the Hostage, would instantly find their place in pop culture. I wish I'd known before I said the line. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out that this probably, decades from now, will be like one of the lines in, in pop culture. I'm just saying, before I say it, just let's all acknowledge the fact that this is going to, you know, go way beyond what we're doing today. No idea. You know, bogey, here's looking at you, kid. Start of a beautiful friendship, whatever he says at the end of Casablanca. Maybe they know. Certainly if it's placed at the end of a movie or something, you might go, yeah, this might be one of those that, you know, maybe. So many other things have to happen. It has to be a hit. The movie has to be good. You have to be good in it. it so many things factor into those things that rise up. And I'm, I'm shaving in Dumb and Dumber, I think, will be on my tombstone. The other one's Gettysburg, where I scream bayonets. 
that I knew that when we were doing it, I'm going because I knew he was pushing in. You know, here I come. I knew that was let him land bayonets and just from your fucking toes, just let it come out and cut. And it's you put the music under it and you're going, yep, yep. No, but pop quiz hot shot. No, I didn't see that coming. Jack gets blown away by the force of the bomb. There was some wire removal there with visual effects, which is standard practice today. Not so much then. And voila, the elevator sequence comes to a close. We're going to be saying goodbye to the elevator folk after this, so let's have them start to wind us down. Here's Susan Barnes. Speed, the gift that keeps on giving. The bigger the hit, the more the residuals. So it was a huge hit. So, I mean, I've just had really good residuals for years. I mean, since it hit TV that year. I'm never surprised when I open a residual and it's speed. Never. People still love it. Paige Goodman. To this day, I still get residuals. Like every once in a while, I get a check for like 18 cents or $17. Like it's super random and I just laugh, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Patrick Fischler. He made an incredible movie. Speed is an incredible film. I haven't seen it in a long time. But every single one of my friends who have kids show it to their kids and then they text me. They're like, holy shit, you're in speed. Like everyone who forgets I'm in speed. They send the same screenshot of me looking up in the elevator. But I remember going to opening weekend at the Man's Chinese and I took my dad, who's like a movie lover and who passed away a couple of years after speed. But he, I remember both of us actually... First time I went, went with my group of friends to like a midnight show at the Man's Chinese, that opening Friday night. And we freaked out. We were like, holy shit, this movie's incredible. And that was the first time. Also, people were like, wait, were you just in that movie? Like looking at me, like, wait, were you that guy in that movie? And then I took my dad the following week to see it because I was like, I felt proud. Like, look, I'm in a movie, man. And, you know, he loved it. So my memories of Speed are so fond, you know, and of how good the movie turned out. And how sort of special it is and it's held up. It's not easy for action movies to hold up. It really isn't. And Richard Gelb. I'll say this, and uh, you may not believe it, but I went to the premiere. And I, when I saw it, I thought, wow, they, they made this amazing movie. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I was in the elevator. About a day or two after it opened, I was with my, my wife. We went to breakfast at uh, Campanile on La Brea. I don't think it's there anymore. I'm not making this up. The maitre d' is seating us, and he lo- he does a double take on me and says, hey, you're the guy in the elevator. I mean, if you blink, you will not see me. So people really watch movies closely. And with that, I just want to mention a few things about these folks to close. Richard, who we just heard from, co-created a game during the pandemic called Polarized. It's like a game night kind of thing where you have to argue risky or dangerous topics, but you don't get to choose the side you're on. The idea is, you know, we're so polarized about various topics in society today that sometimes those Thanksgiving dinners can be awkward. So this is a way to have fun with all of that. Paige, meanwhile, produces a podcast called American Glutton with her friend, actor Ethan Suplee. You might remember him from stuff like Remember the Titans and TV's My Name is Earl. He was the big guy who was Jason Lee's buddy. 
Well, he's absolutely shredded now, and that podcast follows his health and weight loss journey. Patrick is doing his thing. He's been on stuff like Billions and The Lincoln Lawyer and Barry lately. Just keeps working. Susan has left acting and lives on the Monongahela River in southwestern Pennsylvania these days, which sounds lovely. Michael would appear to have left acting and background work behind as well, and Cece is the manager of Xi'an Restaurant out here in Beverly Hills. So if you ever pop in, say hello. There's a bit more to be said about the elevator sequence, but as I said, I think we can hold off for that visual effects episode when we start detailing the post-production phase next month. For now, we still have a third act to knock out. Next week on 50 miles per hour. Finally, we come to the third act of Speed, a subway finale built with a number of old-school filmmaking techniques. It's one of those situations in movies where you know that it's a model, but you're okay with it. In fact, the reason it works is because it's a bit of everything. You know, and because it's an action film, it all goes together so quickly. Just asking them questions about, well, if you're going to shoot this you know, for real, how would you do it? You know, and then you sort of take those ideas and you scale them down. But it's a race against the clock as suddenly the film has a fast-approaching early summer release date. With compliment, a real tough lady at 20th Century Fox called us and said, you no longer have a personal life. You are going to work every day to the point of exhaustion until you are done. At a certain point, the studio just didn't care about the money. They were backing up the Brinks truck and handing us wads of money just to make sure it got done on time. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.